You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, exploring the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm Hannah Young, and my guest today is Sheena Wagstaff, Head of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Met. Sheena joined the museum in 2012 after serving as Chief Curator at London's Tate Modern since 2001. In London, she played a leading role in a large number of exhibitions, including one Munuv, Roy Lichtenstein, and Edward Hopper, and was also seminal in the establishment and expansion of the Turbine Hall, which has become a key fixture at the Tate, offering experiential art to visitors. I have swung on swings in that hall, stood in awe of a giant sun made out of hundreds of lamps, and walked along a 548-foot crack in the hall floor. In New York, Sheena has, without doubt, raised the profile and prominence of modern contemporary art at the museum. She has curated numerous shows at the Met, including notably the work of Gerhard Richter, Nazreen Mohammadi, and the David Hockney retrospective. I had the privilege of first meeting Sheena last year, just as the Met had reopened its doors following closure as a result of the pandemic. And I can testify to her expert curatorial eye. One of her more recent acquisitions, Charles Ray's Two Horses, also captured the imagination of my seven-year-old daughter, who was so inspired by the 10 by 14 foot granite relief uh, for her own recent school art project that she modeled on it. Thankfully, not including chiseling into our granite worktop. Sheena, it's such a pleasure having you here on Bricks in the Big Apple. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Hannah. I'm thrilled um, to have been invited, actually, and I'm also delighted to hear um, that um, already there has been an effect on your seven-year-old daughter um, by Charles Ray. Um, I won't share um, the extraordinary uh, logistical challenges that bringing um, that work into the museum and also installing it, we had to actually make new walls um, for it, but it is an absolutely wonderful piece and I hope will be a a destination artwork for people coming to the museum in the future. Well, I very much encourage our listeners to go and see it if you haven't already done so. It is utterly incredible and unique. Uh, and as I say, it captured my daughter's imagination in a way that I've not seen before. So um, thank you to you for bringing that to the Met. Um, I wonder if you could start by giving our audience uh, a, a bit of an overview of your career journey so far. My career, my career journey really began with one aha moment, actually, which was um, walking into the Museum of Modern Art, as it was then called in Oxford, um, as a, a student, really, um, and encountering on its walls the work of an artist that I then discovered called Arshila Gorky. Um, and seeing these paintings on the wall by this artist um, just blew me away. I had, I've never really had um, such a moment of revelation and such a strong moment of revelation um, in my life before. I had been geared up until that point to a career either in medicine or in architecture. And so not really sort of from that sort of deep cultural aspect. And so um, seeing these paintings um, was extraordinary for a couple of reasons. One is that they are abstract primarily, although they are based on a sort of, you know, 
um, a, a biomorphic um, aspect of, of painting, um, but they're also by an artist who's a great colorist. Um, but most of all, what I was struck by was that I knew intuitively that there was a language um, that they were speaking. And I wasn't quite able to understand that language. And it was at that moment, literally at that moment, that I resolved that I wanted to be able to interpret that language. And, and in doing so, I then started studying art history. Um, it is worth saying that Arshila Gorki, if people don't know, um, was an Armenian painter. He, um, as a child, escaped the Armenian genocide in the early 1900s. His mother actually died of starvation. Um, and he arrived in the United States and became, in his very short life, he was probably in his late 40s, I'm not quite sure how old he was when he died, he actually committed suicide, but he was the same generation of Jackson Pollock, of Willem de Kooning, of Mark Rothko, and he had a seminal influence on American abstract expressionism. And I think in some respects, I have always been influenced by that example of an artist who comes from elsewhere and comes to the United States as a place of refuge and of a place to start a new life. Um, and um, it is um, that example that so many of the artists that I brought into the Mets collection and that indeed, you know, populate exist the existing Mets collection um, is defined by. Or that kind of experience is defined by. It sounds like a really profound moment for you. Speaking about your time at the Tate, Sheena, were there any particular uh, mentors or colleagues that influenced you? So as I mentioned, Hannah, I think earlier, um, Tate Modern opened in 2000, and that was a brainchild of Nick Sirota, um, Sir Nicholas Sirota. Um, and he is someone who has been um, a great mentor to me throughout my professional life. Um, he actually happened to have been running the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford when I had that revelatory moment um, with Arshida Gorky, although I hadn't actually met Nick at that point. Um, and he, he represents a generation of museum leaders or leaders in, in general who um, have very many different skills brought to bear on not just running a museum, but creating a cultural community, particularly for Britain, um, which until, until um, 2000 did not have a dedicated museum of modern and contemporary art in London. And, and he, he um, created maybe, as well as fed, the hunger for British citizens to encounter art made by their peers. Um, and Tate Modern is an example of a museum that not only changed the course of art history in its worldview, but also changed the notion of what a museum actually stands for and made a building with the genius of the Swiss architects Herzog and de Meuron, 
that became a destination for people who know nothing whatsoever about art, as well as art historians and indeed faculty members who took their students. So he is a, a leader of an astonishing and remarkable kind um, because he also brings to bear on his leadership um, a kind of intellectual capacity that is sometimes missing in museum leaders across the world and also a compassion and empathy for, um, for the general citizenship to have access to culture and a real proactive um, role in British society, which he continues having, you know, now retired from the Tate, which he continues in his um, leadership of the Arts Council of England, as well as being on the board of the BBC. Um, he's a diplomat um, and he is someone who has worked through the arduous process of negotiating with successive British governments to ensure that culture has always been part of their agenda when very often, than more often than not, the cultural ministers know next to nothing about culture. Um, and it's always been a, a cabinet position where um, it, it's been the kind of optional extra, rather like the way that they used to put culture at the end of the 10 o'clock news as the feel-good factor before you turned off the TV and went to bed. Uh, and tell us about coming to New York. Was that happenstance? Was that a calculated part of your career? Um, it was, well, I sort of st started my love affair with New York in, um, the 80s, I was living and working in London, another favorite city, I have to say. Um, but I saved up my <clears throat> very um, small salary in order to pay for a transatlantic flight, which then was with Virgin. Um, and um, I arrived in the city and spent most of my time actually walking. I was beguiled as so many people um, are still. Um, perhaps less so now. I was beguiled then, um, as people are perhaps, although less so, um, by my own mind's eye version of America, which was uh, created or shaped by Hollywood movies to a certain extent. And so there was a, a sort of romanticism, um, an idealism about my impression of, of America. And being in New York at that time, um, it was a, you know, a gritty reality, which was nothing like the picture of the, the movies. And I liked that even more. Um, and so I resolved to come back. I did, and I did. I came back um, to the Whitney Museum's independent study program. I was the first um, Brit to be um, admitted to that program. And um, I spent a delirious year of complete irresponsibility, of hardly sleeping, <laughs> seeing masses of art, having a wonderful set of friends, many of whom remain my friends um, now, today, and, um, and then went back to London. And so after, you know, a, a hiatus too with my family um, in Pennsylvania, 
for nearly 10 years, um, where I worked at the Frick and where my husband was the founder director of the Andy Warhol Museum. When I was approached by the Met for this position, um, it, it was this incredible opportunity to create a sort of distinctive place for contemporary art in the context of the long tale of history, you know, 5,000 years worth of creative endeavor that is encapsulated in the Met's collection. And it was just a kind of dream come true in a way. It was something I'd always wanted to do, which was to position contemporary art within this broader context than, than you know, just the context of a modern art museum, which, you know, even now is only 121 years of art. So it was an extraordinary opportunity. So yes, it was a conscious desire to come back to New York City. And it's great to hear as well about your experience in Pennsylvania. That's also part of our patch here at the consulate. Um, oh. So it's great to hear the, the cultural connections uh, locally as well to, to Pennsylvania. Was it in Pittsburgh that mm -hmm. I read? Yes, I was the um, director of collections exhibitions and education there and um, at, at the Frick Art and Historical Center. Um, it has a collection that spans, um, and it's, it's you know, mainly uh, Western European and American. It was when Frick, you know, one of the great old robber barons of the United States was also um, collecting art as a sort of nascent collector with his great friend, um, Andrew Mellon, um, another robber baron. Um, and they, um, they vied with one another to make these beautiful collections. And so that was the collection um, that I worked with um, at the Frick and also created a small contemporary program. So that sort of lit the hunger in me for that kind of connection with history. And you've been at the Met now for almost 10 years. Uh, so it must feel like home to you now? No, it's eight and a half years, I think. Okay. Um, um, is it home for me? I, you know, that cliche home is where the heart is, 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 is true. And it can have, it doesn't necessarily have to have a single place. I think I have the advantage and huge privilege of belonging to both countries. Um, I've always loved the idea of being um, part of both the old world and the new world mm -hmm. and discovering, of course, as we all are, the more unsavory threads of continuity in cultural inequity across both of those, both of those worlds. Um, but I've also, in my childhood and in my life in general, um, with a family, you know, been very peripatetic. And so the idea of living and working, being embedded in communities has always been very important to me. And I do have the advantage, of course, of being able to travel um, across the Atlantic um, um, with a relative amount of freedom. And for that, I'm really grateful. And I wanted to pick up on uh, your point about home. Um, we'll come on to the pandemic a bit later, but I was very sad to miss the Home is a Foreign Place exhibition, which I know had to close sadly early because of COVID. And I read that the um, exhibition was an exploration of home and place reflecting different ways artists have responded to cultural moments. Uh, 
and I know that you place great importance on um, having collections that are both culturally and geographically diverse. And I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about this and why that's important to you. The, the necessity to create contemporary collections that have a world view is something that I learned and relished from my years at Tate Modern. Tate Modern, you, you know, when it opened in 2000, um, was and remains a pioneer in that respect. Um, and museums, both in Europe and in the United States, are still lagging far behind that example. So I brought that experience um, and that quest to my job at the Met. The structures of the Met are very different from that of Tate Modern, of course. And so my first act was to hire um, a, um, a number of curators whose expertise lies in very particular regions of the world that are um, almost like contemporary continuities to the historic collections at the Met. Viz collecting, um, sorry, Viz hiring uh, a curator um, for Latin American art, a curator for South Asian art, a curator for the Middle East um, and uh, Turkish art. Um, and there is one more curator actually who's just about to, to come into the Met for East Asian art. So those, um, and, and those curators all um, have families and backgrounds um, still in those regions. That was very important to me. It was, it was really important not to do what very many um, museums do, which is to have curators who really kind of helicopter into those regions, buy up work and bring them back um, as booty into their collections. It has to be inflected by a much more sensitive um, um, and nuanced relationship to that community to understand how those works of art, not just are significant for the local community, but how best to interpret them within the framework of essentially what a Western museum, and that is what the Met is, that's what all museums are, actually. Um, and so, you, you know, how, how do you best display those works? So that was important to me. Home is a Foreign Place was an exhibition that reflected a great deal of the work that we as a team, curatorial team, with that, that international expertise and world outlook have built <clears throat> in these last, well, by then, um, seven years. And so it varied um, and included, it, you know, it had upfront two major works, um, two huge, you know, icons for the Met's collection. One was Jasper Johns's White Flag, a very seminal iconic work for that American artist in that moment. The other was an exhibit, was a, the other was a work by Zarina, Zarina Hashmi, an Indian artist who actually lived and worked in the United States in New York um, since the 1970s. Um, she went by the, the single name of Zarina. And it was, the work is this vast um, uh, grid of woodblock, of woodblock prints 
that are that denote the title of the work, which is Home is a Foreign Place. And um, and Zarina, who I got to know very well before she sadly died um, about a year and a half ago. Um, and it was important to put these two great Titan artists up alongside each other. In America, Jasper Johns is universally acknowledged as one of the greatest you know, living painters of our time and in this country. Zarina was hardly acknowledged in her time. And so, and yet she's as an important artist. So that was, that set the tone for the whole show, which included work by um, great um, sort of grandfather of Ethiopian modernism by Ibrahim al-Salahi, who works, who actually lives and works just outside Oxford in his, um, in his senior years. Um, and very, very many other artists from Singapore, the Sudan, the Middle East in general, South Asia, including India, Pakistan, um, and also many artists who come from those countries who are now resident in the United States, particularly actually within the New York area. People who have dual, dual nationalities and who make up the global scope of this city, which I think is an incredibly important point to make, is that it this, this museum is is of the world, but it's also within the world, even of its local community. Um, and there are, um, there are so many different nationalities represented, particularly in Queens, actually, which has this astonishing number of different um, ethnic groups uh, settled within Queens. Um, it's worth actually finding that out because it, it, it's a, um, um, it's a beacon, really, of internationalism for this the greater New York area. That's fascinating. And um, uh, I think the exhibition also included a work by Faith Ringwald called Freedom of Speech, which um, we actually have in our hallway here. And I we was do. looking at last night. Um, Fantastic. But, but your, um, your comment about your curators as well, having that reach back to their communities and being able to transpose the culture uh, into a US context, I think is also really fascinating. Um, and to your point around um, broadening out people's cultural horizons, I mean, you've worked in two of the most seminal museums in the world. Would you say that people have different, uh, different tastes for art, do you see your role as broadening out people's uh, art appreciation so that they can understand, you know, some of these other artists that you've talked about, as well as, you know, the classic modern art? One of the advantages and challenges of working in an encyclopedic museum is that very word encyclopedic, which it is not. Um, and how one navigates around the fact that as curators, we have an enormous responsibility to artists and to our visitors and to history in the way that we interpret the works that we have in our collection and indeed the responsibility attached to deciding which works come into the collection and indeed which don't. And so, well, so that worldview 
um, has a really important part to play um, within a city, which is what the Metropolitan Museum is. It's called the Metropolitan, a metro, um, you know, a museum of the metropolis. And although it is, as so many US museums are, with very few exceptions, a private museum, it has a um, it has a deep public function to to act as a not just as a a place of civic of civic gathering, but also a place where, in looking at objects on artifacts and works of art, that people get some sense of what it means to be that creator, to be um, within a particular cultural context, and through which gender that rare emotion nowadays, and that is of empathy. And it is, it sounds arrogant to say that that is an aim for us, particularly when as curators, we do not represent the world in our, in our internal community. And yet at the same time, it is something that for most of us, if not all of us, it is why we're in the museum business to begin with. It's a passion, it's a quest, it's a mission, and God knows we don't get paid very highly for it. So it has to be that. Um, but it's also something that I think we all deeply believe in. It's the power of the institution to actually change minds. And yes, there's a digital aspect to that. There's a virtual aspect to it. It's reaching you know, beyond the physical confines of the, of the building, but it is an important aspect of what, of what we do and why we do what we do. And you clearly uh, see the importance of diversity and different cultures as um, integral to the way that you work. The fact that you have your curators coming from different parts of the world to, to, to bring that knowledge and that richness of culture to your team. Can you talk a little bit more about how you think museums and galleries can make art more accessible and reach a more diverse community of art enthusiasts? I was interested in particularly about your point about the Met the Metropolitan Museum. How do we broaden out the, uh, the, the, the community of enthusiasts so that we are reaching more diverse audiences? It starts both simultaneously outside and inside the institution. Within the institution, you have to have the right, <clears throat> within the institution, you have to have the right people around the table when you are discussing works of art coming into the collection or indeed designing a program. That means that you need to have a breadth of cultural experience and cultural knowledge around that table. That means that you have to have a high degree of diversity that determines the direction in which you're going. There's more work to be done on that. Externally, there are um, outreach programs and I'm, and there's of course the, the digital aspect as well, which includes um, you know, basic things like translation um, and getting translation right, having the right language and the right interpretive aspect, interpretation in terms of not just language, but, but cultural interpretation, sensitivities to different types of culture. Um, 
we have, I think, as an as an um, as a field, relied too much on education for what is now called outreach. Or um, and, but it is incredibly important, and that is, it starts from childhood, um, and it's really important to have uh, educators who are also. Um, who have deep experience in the arts, not necessarily art historians, but also understand that that pipeline is crucial to feeding and nourishing the way that an, a museum has more and more relevance to its community. Um, and so, you know, to that end, the obvious thing to do, which really has not been done for many, many you know, for, well, has not been done to date until very recently, is um, paid internships. You know, kids who come in at high school level, and even before then, providing the means and um, the, for accessibility and mobility for younger students to come with teachers to the museum where they don't even have the arts necessarily on their curriculum. You know, Britain, actually, I have to say, is better in that respect with regard to curriculum, although God knows it's always under threat um, by successive governments who never seem to understand in the United Kingdom how important the arts and culture are to, to the not just the well-being of, of, a, of the citizenship, but also actually a, a really viable centre for trade and also for um, revenue. Um, and, you know, the United States is far behind Britain, but Britain has a great deal of work to do still. Um, so anyway, that was, a, that was a, an aside rant. <laughs> but it is, it's important. Um, so I think, you know, to answer your question, we still have a huge amount of more work to do um, on both counts. And, but I think, I think we are in a moment right now we're not post-pandemic, we're not even post-colonial in any, you know, deep meaning of the word, but we are in a time, I think, where museums like the Met have been fundamentally shaken to their core um, about, their, about their own histories and being transparent about their own histories, but also having to really reckon with those and set out a new account of, of their relevance to their communities and the way that they, that change is endemic to the institution and the way that we move forward in all aspects of our operations and our programs. Mm. Are there any artists in particular who you're excited about from that perspective, who bring that richness of culture and diversity? To answer that question, you know, the answer lies in what we have been collecting over the last eight years and what we will continue to collect. We have um, uh, a collection display that will be on view at the Met from June 2021, um, which is a very small percentage of work that we have brought into our collection, mostly by gift, promise gift, um, some by bequest. Um, that focuses particularly on art by artists of colour and also art that just happens to be made by 
um, women. Um, and um, that is just a, you know, a, a strong aspect of the thread that feeds what we do and what we've been doing. That sounds really exciting. And uh, you say it's something that we're all working on at the moment uh, here at the consulate. We are spending a lot of our time focusing on supporting female founders uh, and bringing over female founders um, as part of trade missions. Uh, but we're also hoping to have our first black founder trade mission later on this year. And as you say, it's, it's something that we're all continuing to um, uh, to hold the mirror up and, and really challenge ourselves on what more we can do. What, what tends to happen when one is representing a nationality on, on either side of the pond is that one, culturally, um, one, um, one tends to deal with, um, you know, a great, the celebrity factors, but also the cultural cliches. And one of the things that I would like to see far more of an interchange and acknowledgement of is those um, creative people, not necessarily visual artists, which I deal with, but also filmmakers like Steve McQueen or architects like David Ajay, you know, who have made such signally important contributions to their own fields um, in, in so many different countries, not just the UK and the US. And, uh, you know, I will say, that you know, Steve McQueen, who is a national living treasure of the, of the United Kingdom, um, and it was his film, 12 Years a Slave, um, that came out in the United States, um, I, I don't know, five or six years ago, followed by the small act series that he did on the BBC, which was just extraordinary, actually mind blowing. And I would like to see that kind of inter, you know, that it rather, there are, there are creatives working on both sides of the Atlantic simultaneously, and it would be very, very good to, to profile them. David Ajay, of course, was the architect for the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is on the mall in Washington, DC. It's an unbelievable building. It's absolutely unique. It's pioneering. It's an iconic building. It speaks to his own architectural sort of artistry, but at the same time, it really has a phenomenal effect culturally within this country. Um, and he carries the flag for both. And how you've managed to stay in touch with your community over this period. I guess social media plays a part in that, but when you're not having people coming through the door, it must be that much harder to continue to reach back to your community of enthusiasts? I mean, going back to that fateful morning of March the 13th, Friday, March the 13th, I remember it very vividly. Um, when everything closed, the museum closed, and we thought in our naivety that it was just going to be a matter of months before we reopened. And then the realization when we got to July that actually there was, um, uh, no possibility of our reopening the Met Breuer, which was um, a, um, a wonderful building in which um, the modern contemporary team at the Met was really able to play out a kind of manifesto program for international art, international contemporary art. And so the, that kind of 
the realization and the actual closure of the building in August um, was a was a kind of moment of reckoning, I suppose, not just professionally, but personally for me. The pandemic as a whole, um, during this last year, I would say, unlike um, the, that, I don't know whether it is a myth or not, but um, I was terribly excited in April to think, oh my gosh, this is the moment when I can read and, and you know, study and do all those kind of things that I've been wanting to do for so many years. I have never worked so hard in my life in this last year. It has been extraordinary in really pushing us all to work out new ways of making ourselves digitally accessible, of creating program that really does um, convey the essence of objects and of a sort of artistic creativity without having the advantage of being in proximity with anyone. And, you know, we, we failed experimented and we failed um, on many occasions. And then through that, I think slowly we've learned and we've still got a lot more learning to do. So that was that was one aspect. I think the year two has been one where I have become more and more convinced as the digital aspect of, uh, <clears throat> with the digital aspect of museum outreach has developed in, in more and more sophisticated ways. The primacy of the object is still absolutely central, not just to our mission, but to the importance of our lives. And in a, in a sort of strange, maybe not so strange analogy, is that moment when George Floyd was murdered and where I was on the streets in New York City um, and then actually a little later on in London. Um, and the sheer mass and magnitude of human bodies being in these huge cities, going back to those kind of moments of, of you know, activism of the 1960s where, you know, that, that promise and hope of new society was sort of quashed in the intervening years and then Yet at the same time, we go out onto the streets again to be counted in our in, in numbers to in our sort of physical three dimensionality, just like an object is to make a statement to a government, to a leadership. And in this case, you know, in the United States, a totally defunct government um, and <clears throat> which you know, and, and a culture that still perpetuates violence and um, against black people and um, racial inequity in every aspect. And so it, I think it, that kind of combination of the necessity for being present in, in, physical, in, in physical mean and physical form um, made me feel even more optimistic about the future of museums, even as the museums being identified as institutions that represent embedded racism in every possible way, um, have, to, have to change course 
in a fundamental, deep and lasting way, it still felt a moment of a sort of catalytic change. And I think that was what the, the pandemic year, which goes far beyond, you know, a small coronavirus um, meant to me. And I, it sort of fed, it's fed an urgency that pre-existed and has made it even more imperative that we achieve many of the 13 goals that the Met uh, determined um, last year that we had to fulfill and keep, uh, keep allegiance to. Thank you, that's incredibly profound. And as you say, it feels like we've had to really tap into the essence of what life is over the past year and challenge ourselves in a completely different way both in terms of our own inner prejudices, but also, as you say, in terms of how we reach out to others and how we adopt new approaches, new tech. Um, yeah. And hopefully, you know, hopefully a lot of that will be, you know, for the better, ultimately. We can only um, hope, but we've got to be agents of change ourselves. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. And what's next for the Met, what, what should we look forward to in terms of your work? Well, um, the, I mean, the, one, of the, um, one of the stimuli for me uh, to come to the Met, um, in addition to running the Met Breuer, creating a different kind of program, building a team, building a collection, et cetera, was also the prospect of a decision that the Mets trustees made um, now a decade ago um, to rebuild the modern and contemporary wing of the Met, the Southwest wing of the Met. It's a se sequence of galleries that um, is quite limited in scope in its um, space, um, but also the nature of the galleries themselves and their ability to reflect um, different types of interdisciplinary work that is being made now by artists and has been for the last 30, 40 years and through the 20th century. And so that is a, that's probably the biggest project on the horizon. It of course was knocked off center um, by, by COVID um, and also by the change of leadership at the Met in 2016. Um, but that is certainly something that we are now looking very closely at with new leadership of at the trustee level, um, an enhanced board of trustees and um, a greatly enhanced group of staff and different sort of stakeholders in the building. Um, so that's, that's really both on the near horizon and the midterm horizon. Um, programmatically at the Met, we are, um, as I said earlier, we are reconfiguring our collections, we're interpreting our collections through labels, but also we are reinstalling our collections. And so there will be quite a lot of change manifest in the permanent collection galleries over the next couple of years. We are also um, doing very large shows that are dedicated in addition to the Alice Neal retrospective that we have just opened, a really key iconic female artist um, 
who has a particular relevance to New York City and to her community um, in which she lived and worked in Spanish Harlem. Um, but also forthcoming, we have an exhibition of um, art that, uh, that traces the effect and influence of surrealism on global communities. So it's not really about surrealism itself, it is about a, the, the sort of global aspect of surrealism, which is the first of its kind. We have another exhibition which um, uh, makes a correlation between um, Cubism and, of course, the wonderful Leonard Lauder collection that we have of Cubism at the Met that we were given by Lauder um, in, uh, well, just after I arrived, actually. Um, then there will be a smaller series of exhibitions in our own galleries and its relationship to the trompe l'oeil tradition in historic art, as represented most particularly in our European paintings collections, which go back, of course, to medieval art in a specific gallery called the Kimmelman Gallery series, and we will be launching um, that with an exhibition devoted to the early paintings of Louise Bourgeois, um, which have never been seen before. Um, and so that that's another aspect. And then we are, I've actually just completed um, the design of a quite a detailed program of three commissions for the facade niche, which is a kind of manifesto of, sort, of sorts for the front facade of the Met speaking to the city, and also the, um, the commissions by living artists for the roof garden as well, which sits on top of the Met in this wonderful you know, viewpoint that looks, that sort of straddles both Central Park and the city, um, but also speaks to the kind of ideological underpinnings of the Met itself. So it has a kind of a political undercurrent to it. So those, um, those six artists are now working on their respective projects. And amongst them, um, one of the forthcoming um, facade niche is, is dedicated to a British artist who I can't reveal at the moment. Um, and then we also have another British artist who is coming up in our Kimmelman series um, gallery as well, um, which I'm very excited about um, on both counts. Gosh, that all sounds really exciting. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to the Alice Neal exhibition as well. That looks incredible. The way that she paints faces, the expressions on them are just amazing. So. And I, I, th I think what you're saying, Hannah, too, is that, you know, it's she's such an important artist to show right now. Unfortunately, she's no longer with us. But you will see, most particularly in New York, but also actually in London and elsewhere, too, is that there is a new proliferation of artists working in portraiture, but also figurative painting. And so there is the primacy of the human being focused on right now in um, through the work of younger painters, particularly, and younger painters coming from all over the world. It is an extraordinary phenomenon. Um, and, you know, we're at a moment, I think, in history where there's going to be quite a lot of historical sifting, as there always is, um, to ensure that the most important artists are represented in all of our collections.
Sheena, it's been an absolute privilege talking to you. Thank you for sharing your work and your influences with us. Uh, and thank you for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you so much, Hannah. It's been a really lovely conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.